0: You done now? Hi everybody, this is Bob Gale, co-creator of Back to the Future, and you're listening to Brad Gilmore. Doc! 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 Ah! Okay, okay, relax, Doc. It's me. It's me. It's Martin. Oh, I can't be. just sent you back to the future. Yeah. Oh, I know you did send me back to the future, but I'm back. I'm back from the future. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, Doc. Doc. Uh. I mean, you built a time machine? Out of a DeLorean? The way I see it, if you're gonna build a time machine in a car, why not do it with some style? Well, this is heavy. hello everybody and welcome to Back to the Future the Podcast, the only podcast looking back in time at the greatest film trilogy of all time, Back to the Future. I'm your friend in time, Brad Gilmore, and here we are, here we are, a glorious day to talk about the greatest films ever made. Uh, Thank you all for joining us on this episode here in season nine. Are we already at the fifth episode? Is that already possible? It is. Hope you enjoyed the season thus far uh, with Steve Franks, of course, Allison Robicelli, and last week, Dan Abrams from Law and Crime Network, uh, also from ABC, and my folks, Burrell and Marsha Gilmore. Uh, Hope you enjoyed that little... uh, Look at history that was connected to the Back to the Future movies, the uh, the assassination of John F. Kennedy, and, of course, the trial of Jack Ruby. A little off the beaten path, but, again, I want you all to trust me when I do those things because I, I really love history, and I think that's part of the reason why I love Back to the Future so much. So if I find a way to sneak in a little history in there, um, I might do it. And I thought the time capsule was a really cool way uh, to do that, so hopefully you enjoyed that episode today. We're going to be looking at the original versions of Back to the Future script. I'm going to be reading for you the uh, the, the script. We're going to talk about some of the differences in it, uh, in the opens of, of the scripts. Let me say, and we're going to talk about some of the differences if in the scripts versus what we got in the original movie. There's some really cool stuff in there um, that I sometimes I think when I read these things because I've read these scripts uh, a couple times. When I read them, I always think, I try to visualize the movie in my head and say, oh, man, that would have been really awesome. Wow, what if they did that? Oh, that would have been cool. And it paints a fun picture. So I hope you enjoy that. I want to take this time, though, to acknowledge a couple of you pinheads out there who left some great reviews for the show over the weekend. Um over the last week, I should say. This one comes from CMJ1923. It says, Love this pod. I consider Back to the Future the greatest trilogy ever made. I love Brad's enthusiasm and love for the films. Well, I appreciate you, CMJ. This podcast keeps my love for the movies alive. Thank you, Brad, for the show. And I hope to continue listening to it well into the future. Well, I really appreciate that one, CMJ1923. This one is from Fleecy Product 24. Who says, great show. Left five stars. If you love the Back to the Future movies, you're going to love this podcast. Well put together show and a treat to listen to. Even if you're a more casual fan, there are some great time capsule episodes that look at historical events around the films. Thank you, Felicity Product 24. Um, Thanks for a great podcast. Well, thanks for leaving a great review. And the last one that I want to read here is the definitive Back to the Future podcast. This is from Rondo Carl Carl Rissian. Calrissian, oops, uh, Rondo Calrissian, who left five stars and said, I started listening to Brad's podcast in 2019. I was searching around on Amazon for science fiction slash fantasy podcasts. There were several associated with the greats such as Star Wars, Star Trek, etc. Then found this one with the kid sitting on a DeLorean and thought, hmm, what could this youngster, I am 59 years old, have to offer about back to the future that would have gone on for four years? The answer is, everything brad has covered and continues to cover major and minor aspects of the movie that are both relevant and interesting i proudly tell my kids that this pot this is the podcast i look forward to posting new episodes they just can't fathom that a podcast about a trilogy continues for seven years and nine seasons neither can i thank you for continuing to dig deep on this related and related subjects brad this stuff is heavy from ron welk well ron man what a awesome review that was when I read that, I screenshotted it and I sent it to my wife and to my folks because I was really excited to see that. And, and it's, it's those reviews like the three I just read and Rob's uh, in particular that keep me doing this show and keep me trying to come up with new episodes and, and everything like that. So really appreciate it, Rob. And Rob, hit me up on Twitter uh, at Brad Gilmore. And I want to get you an autographed copy of Back from the Future sent out to you, man. I really appreciate the review. If you're listening right now, make sure y'all leave a five-star review of the show. Would really appreciate that. Maybe you'll get a copy of the book. But without further ado, let's look at the original versions of Back to the Future scripts. Right now on Back to the Future, the podcast. All right, guys. So we obviously... You know, we've, we've talked about Back to the Future on this podcast since 2015. We've discussed it in length, different aspects of the film. But one of the things that I've actually never done in the podcast, which I talked about in the open, which I was really excited to do, is look at some of the major differences between drafts of the film and what we eventually ended up with on the screen in the summer of 1985. So, uh, in my book, Back from the Future, Celebration of the Greatest Time Travel Story Ever Told, I know y'all are sick of me plugging it, but you know what? It's a book, and like you know, it's cool. But in my book, I, I talked about some of the major differences between the script and the screen, obviously, and um, due to the graciousness, really, of the Bobs, Bob Gale and Bob Zemeckis, and that of Stephen Clark, who I believe was the first to make it available online, we have the original version of Back to the Future that was written, Way, way, way back in February of 1981, right? Four years before we would ever see it. More than four years. About four years, two months, and uh, some odd number of days. I was going to do the days, and that would have been really impressive, but I didn't do it off the top of my head. So anyway, they made that script available. And then there was the daily shooting script of Back to the Future, which had also a different opening. Both of these scripts have a different way of opening the movie than what we eventually got, which I find to be... So crazy, because the opening of Back to the Future is so iconic, you would have thought that was the original idea the entire time. Because as somebody who's written things before, not only books, um, you know, I I write stories about people from other planets, and uh, I always, I stick, even if I go back and I correct drafts and and make changes, I always really stick with what my, my gut instinct was of how to open the story up. Right. I wrote a screenplay last summer and um, I'm actually about to sit down and go through a draft of it. And I don't see myself making major changes like the Bobs made in the Back to the Future script. And also the finished version of Back to the Future, the script has been so wildly regarded as screenwriting 101, a perfect movie, a perfect script, no flaws, no plot holes that you would have thought that they would have just nailed it out of the park from the, from the beginning. So I want to talk about a couple of differences. Before we jump into the openings of these movies, I want to talk about um, some of the differences between these two scripts and what we eventually saw on the um, on the movie. So this comes from Futurpedia, which is a Back to the Future wiki that's created, which is really great. I use it all the time. And this is a uh, article they have. It's filed under draft screenplays, and this is the Back to the Future. Uh, one, first draft screenplay. Okay, and I want to talk about some of the major differences here. Now, again, this was um, the first first draft of the screenplay, and it's dated February twenty fourth, nineteen eighty one. Uh, on the script that I found, which is the sci com version. Uh, according to the Back to the Future wiki, it's 1980, but, you know, it could have started it in late 80, and then when they finished it, it was in early 81. Here's some of the major differences according to this article, and this is, again, based on my research I talk about it in the book. A couple of similarities, but um, but some major differences, right? Of Like Professor Brown is Doc Brown, something that would be changed. Uh, I mean, Doc Brown is Professor Brown, something that, that Sid Scheinberg would change. Wilson's Cafe was the name of it, not Lou's Cafe. And Marty originally had an idea for financial gain, which they, uh, they used the time machine for financial gain, which they eventually did in Back to the Future 2. Again, a little side note here before I move on. If I sound extra nasally... Or if you find myself, uh, if I find myself repeating myself a lot or, or getting things mixed up, I'm getting over a horrendous sinus infection, which did all kinds of things to my body, including 102 degree fever. So <laughs> forgive me, I'm sweating in an air conditioned house here in Houston, Texas, um, while I'm reading this because I think my fever is finally breaking, but I couldn't pass up an opportunity to do back to the future the podcast. So here's some of the major differences. The present was obviously 1982 and not 1985. That's just kind of based on the time that they were reading it or writing it. Hill Valley doesn't exist. It's actually never named in the original script. The uh, town is described as a small Midwestern town. The time machine, of course, resembles a refrigerator and is powered by a power converter, not the flux capacitor. And um, we, we talk about this before, but the idea was eventually dropped because they didn't want kids locking themselves in refrigerators thinking that they could travel through time. But uh, keep note of that fridge. Professor Brown lives in a abandoned theater instead of a garage that uh, is in his home, as we know in the movie. Professor Brown has a chimpanzee named Shimp instead of a dog. Marty's girlfriend's name is Susie Parker instead of Jennifer Parker. Marty is more of a streetwise video pirate, uh, which is really interesting, along with being an aspiring musician. And he's running a secret black market operation with Professor Brown. Now, imagine that for, for years until the comics came out, we had no idea what the relationship was between Marty and Doc. And it was never explained on the screen. And this does make sense. Doc is kind of, you know, uh, dealing with some less than sanitary individuals. We know with the Libyans in the movie, he's fallen down on his luck, running out of money, needs to find a way to keep the lights on and keep the inventing inventing, right? And he wants to be in a uh, black market video piracy operation. Now, I don't know what kind of money you get off of that. It sounds like something more for a teenager than a man uh, of a certain age who has a bit of intelligence to him. But nevertheless, it makes sense why they would come together, right? Because Doc probably doesn't have or doesn't want to be the one in the movie filming, right? So he hires this teenage kid to go do it. That makes sense. I I kind of like it, but the studio refused to make (laughs) a film where the protagonist was a, was a video pirate. Because, I mean, obviously, the piracy issue with, with movie studios and, and, and television networks has been going on for decades, mainly movie studios. And so uh, I can understand why uh, Universal or Columbia at the time probably uh, didn't want that to be the, uh, the, per- the occupation and the relationship between Marty and Professor Brown. Marty's mother is Eileen Baines, who lives in the same house as Marty in 1952. I kind of like that wrinkle that it was the same house. Government agent shoot Professor Brown. Instead of capturing Professor Brown's demise via, via the camcorder, an audio tape recorder is used. Marty travels back to March eleventh, nineteen 1952. Marty's alias is Marty Lewis. Brown, and not Calvin Klein. Brown got his revelation when at a party, a girl hit him on the head with a bottle. Bitch, uh, Biff's catchphrase, Biff's catchphrase is a-hole instead of butthead. The dance is called the Springtime in Paris dance and not the Enchantment Under the Sea dance. The all-black band is Lester Moon and the Midnighters. M, mm, don't like that name. The song that George McFly and Eileen would dance to to have their first kiss is Turn Back the Hands of Time. Though Marty still plays Johnny B. Good afterward, albeit a segue into Rock Around the Clock. You kind of see what they were doing there with, with the time metaphors. George and Eileen meet in the high school cafeteria where he attempts to ask her out and he spills cream corn, as we all have at one point or another. The way Marty returns to 1982 is via a nuclear test site in Nevada where they would... Literally nuke the refrigerator, something that Spielberg would later do in the highly uh, polarizing Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which I think I've talked about on this show before. I like that movie kind of a lot. Um, it ranks above Temple of Doom for me. I think I just lost a bunch of you pinheads. I'm sorry. It might have something to do with it was the first indie movie I got to see in theaters. So there's a certain connection I have to it as a youth. It came out in 08, right? So in 2008, I was 16. So, I mean, maybe that has something to do. With it. Don't hate me, please. Um, when Marty returns to 1982, he discovers that his father had become a boxer instead of a well-known author. And Marty has an unnamed elder brother who has left home, but he does not have a sister. So uh, we didn't have the bro and the sis in the script yet. So those are some of the major differences in the movie. And and look, a lot of them, look, Doc is so iconic for him saying Doc. He calls him prof in the movie. It doesn't really roll off the tongue. Professor Brown probably would have gotten over Doc Brown is better. It is better. Lorraine is better than Eileen. 1955, for some reason, is better than 1985. And I actually think it makes the rock and roll arc work more. Uh, because 1954 is really where you started to hear the rock sound for the first time. So 1952 would have been a little bit, you know, a little bit too soon, I think. But, you know, what do I know? I wasn't alive. Wilson's Cafe, Lose Cafe. I mean, you could take it or leave it. I don't think it would have changed the movie, obviously. Lose. I think that we just have a connection to because it's what it's always been. The thing that probably would have ruined the movie for me or obviously the time machine refrigerator. Not. It's nowhere near as iconic as the DeLorean time machine. There's no way you can make it as iconic. That was, out of everything they changed, the best idea right? The, um, Marty as a video pirate, i am be honest with you. I don't hate it. I actually don't hate it. I think that it had been a little too, um, edgy for what we got from Back to the Future. Um, again, if you, if you remember the origins of the film, a lot of the movies at the time were kind of the R-rated teen comedies. And I think that him being a video pirate, I kind of get a little more edgy Marty, which would have made it seem like maybe this was going to go to the rated R uh, route, especially because Doc gets murdered by government agents. I mean, now Doc does get killed in Back to the Future. But, you know, I don't know. Nuclear test side, it was just, it was a little too much. There's just stuff that was just too much. And and a, a chimp instead of a dog, you know. I don't think that would have worked. Him living in a theater instead of a garage. The garage seems to be better. So, I mean, they made cuts for the right reasons. There, there's nothing in here that I, I think I would have kept Um, that they that they cut, which would have been a bad cut, for for lack of a better term. Enchantment Under the Sea Dance, the rhythmic ceremonial ritual, of course, is uh is such an iconic name. Better than springtime in Paris. I mean, just everything was a right cut. Jennifer... Is a hotter name than Susie. No offense to any Susies out there. Um, it just she, when you see Jennifer Parker, you're like, "Oh man, Jennifer, All right? Jennifer Lopez, Jennifer Aniston. Jennifer Lawrence, Jennifer Parker. It just makes sense. you know it's just such a great name. So I think that they made the best cuts. But the iconic open is what I was talking about. And I want to read the first draft open of "Back to the Future." the way it was originally intended, as written by Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale. What's really great is Gale and Zemeckis allowed um, the original draft to be public, uh, published online, and it's one of the only films where you can find such an early draft of it, and it's great to be able to study. I'm sure there are film professors in film school, when you're talking about screenwriting, and you take a screenwriting class that look at an evolution of a script, and Back to the Future is probably one that they that they do a lot. Um, so let's let's read the first draft. This is, of course, in February of nineteen eighty one. I'm going to read just a little bit of it. Um, I'm not gonna do any character voices, but I just want to read a little bit of it, kind of so we get the uh the opening. Okay. So here we go. Here is the original opening of Back to the Future, Draft 1. Physicists propose that two alternate histories, two equally valid realities could exist side by side. The one you know and the one in which you don't know exists. Time itself may have many potential dimensions, despite the fact that we are condemned to experience only one of them, Carl Sagan. Hey, kids, what time is it? Buffalo Bob Smith says. And the Howdy Doody show begins to play. Fade in, exterior, outer space. The mothership rises above Devil's Tower and sails off into space to the strains of John Williams. In a moment, we realize that we're watching the end titles of Close Encounters. And then we pull back to reveal that the image is on a TV monitor. As we continue pulling back, we discover a bank of video equipment. And Close Encounters is being pirated from a three-quarter inch cassette to VHS and beta. Interior, video work area, laboratory, day. The video pirate operating this equipment is Marty McFly, 17, a good-looking kid who has an air of confidence, just shy of cockiness. He's wearing silver, a silver Porsche jacket, and like most typical modern-day kids, not a stitch of his clothing is without some brand name or form of advertising. He's looking at an ad from a guitar amp in Rolling Stone. With the movie over, Marty shuts down the equipment, ejects the cassettes, and writes on them. Close Encounters, Original Edition. He puts the master tape back in a drawer, and we catch a glimpse of a few other titles, Empire Strikes Back, Stir Crazy, and Superman 2. Marty packs up his cassettes with his school books and takes us into another part of the laboratory. The lab is a huge room, and workbenches are all over, covered with chemical and electronic equipment. The place is old and dusty and has the air of a mad scientist lab of the 1950s. An elderly man is hunched over an experiment on one side of the lab. Marty calls to him. Marty, Professor Brown, it's almost 830. I'm out of here. Professor Brown, shh. Professor Emmett Brown, late 60s, is tinkering with a device that looks like a solar cell, positioning it under a skylight to catch the sun's rays. He is eccentric, moody, but basically kindly and in very involved in his work. Marty has a closer look at what Professor Brown is working on. The device is easily 30 years old, and Brown pours a chemical solution into a compartment in the cell. He plugs a patch cord from the cell into a voltmeter. An incandescent light bulb on the panel glows dimly, and the meter needles move slightly. Professor Brown, blast it! 24 measly volts! He throws a f- flask across the room and it shatters against the wall. Professor Brown points to the sun. The power of a million hydrogen bombs. Points to his experiment. And we get an measly 24 volts. It's not fair. I've been working on this power converter since 1949 and you'd think in all that time I could find the right chemicals that would efficiently convert radiation into electrical energy but no. 33 years of dedication and research and all I have to go show for it is a bootleg video operation. Marty, uh, that reminds me, if, uh, if we could scrape up enough for a 35 film chain, I've got a connection with a projectionist in the first run movie house. We could be selling new movies on the street before they're even in the theater. Doc, a 35 millimeter chain? I'll see what I can do. The doc ponders his power converter. Marty is on his way out. He pauses at the door with five locks on it and tries it. Of course, it doesn't open. Professor Brown, won't you give up? Will you, Marty? Professor Brown, asking without turning around, Marty grins. Marty, one of these days, you're going to leave this door open and I'll find out what's in there. Professor Brown, did you ever consider that some doors are locked for a reason? Marty, nope. that's why I figure doors are made to be open. See you after school. Professor Brown. Oh, Marty, what time did you say it was? Marty. 8.30. Professor Brown. A.M. or P.M. Marty. Prof. The sun is out. Professor Brown. Oh, right, right. Why is Professor Brown English? Sorry. Marty. Geez. For a guy with a ton of clocks, you sure don't pay much attention to time. Indeed, there are a number of clocks all over the lab. Professor Brown. On the contrary, I may not pay much attention to the measurement of time, but I am very aware of time itself. As he talks, Brown walks toward Marty. Professor Brown continued, I believe time to be its own dimension, to be contained, to be controlled. Marty had enough of the professor's rambling. He's heading down the stairway. Marty, catch you later. Marty is gone. Professor Brown To be traveled through. Professor Brown unlocks the door and enters. Interior, locked room. The center of attention here is a morass of equipment of 1940s and 50s vintage that looks like something out of Amazing Stories or Weird Science. A series of lenses is the final end to the maze, indicating that a ray of some sort is to be beamed down on whatever. Professor Brown admires his invention. If only I could harness enough power. Interior stairway, Marty. Marty comes down the stairs to street level and goes out for the day. Exterior, theater building, day. Marty steps onto the street from the theater, the third floor of which houses the lab. The theater is old and abandoned, and on the marquee are the words, Assembly of Christ. From outside, the two stories of offices above the theater look destitute, with weathered soot, covered the walls, and an occasional boarded-up window. Most of the neighborhood businesses are boarded up as well. We get the feeling that this was once a thriving business district, but those days are long gone. A black van with a little ways down the street. On his side, we see the letters NRC. Two men are putting up samples of gutter water into test tubes. They pay no attention to Marty. Marty goes next door into one of the only operating businesses in sight, Wilson's Cafe, a lunch counter joint on its last legs. Interior, Wilson's Cafe. Marty enters. The proprietor, Dick Wilson, 35, is behind the counter. Dick is quite overweight, and he's munching on a baby Ruth candy bar. Marty, uh, morning, Dick. Marty, what's for breakfast? Marty, give me some chili fries and a tab. Marty glances at the sports page of a discarded paper on the counter as Dick brings him the tab. Dick, hot tip. Rubber Biscuit is the third race at Arlington. Marty, Dick, what's with those guys there in the gutter? Dick shrugs. Third time they've been out here this week. Marty watches them for a moment. Marty, what's uh, NRC? Dick shrugs again. I don't know. uh, uh, National Cash Register? Cut to an insert of a science textbook, a photograph of a mushroom cloud with the caption, Last Above Ground Atomic Test, March 18th, 1952, Atkins, Nevada. A hand writes the initials MM plus SP in a cloud, draws an arrow through it like a valentine, and then writes, How about the dance Saturday? We'll have a blast. And I'm going to end it there. That is um, how the original draft opens of Back to the Future. It goes on to uh, have a lecture from Mr. Arkey, uh, who talks about the atomic test. Now, of course, this is the exposition that we would get from the clock tower lady, talking about the lightning hitting the clock tower. But instead, we're getting Mr. Arkey, a teacher, uh, discussing the last time a nuclear test was done. In Nevada. So um, that was the opening of Back to the Future, as written by Bob Gale and Bob Zemeckis in the 1981 draft, February 1981. But there was another draft yet to come that was almost shot, and we're going to read the opening of that one right now. Interior. High school classroom. Day. Day. A weird flickering white light strobes the screen, accompanied by projector noise and an off-screen control voice. Control voice. Five, four, three, two, one, detonate! The light becomes brighter as we pan over to Marty McFly, 17 years old, a good-looking kid wearing Porsche mirrored sunglasses. The mirrored lenses reflect the mushroom cloud of an atomic explosion. The red hot opening music kicks in and the main titles begin. Marty starts bopping along to the rock and roll. He's plugged into a Walkman stereo. We are in a contemporary high school classroom where 30 odd students are watching a 16 millimeter documentary about nuclear tests of the 1950s. Series of shots. Main title sequence. Bored students watch black, the black and white movie. Only Marty is enjoying himself as he listens to his stereo. Marty's foot taps in time to the music. The teacher, Mrs. Woods, 45, looks around the classroom and makes sure the students are paying attention. She has her classroom planner in in hand. The documentary depicts preparations for an atomic test, noting that as many as 20 were done per year in the 1950s. Footage shows how tract houses were constructed and people with mannequins to measure the effects of radiation. Marty continues bopping along. Mrs. Woods notices one head in the classroom bopping. Marty's foot continues to tap in time with the music. Now, a pair of women's shoes step into frame. Mrs. Woods is standing next to Marty's, arms crossed, staring at him. But Marty is oblivious to her. Susie Parker, 17, an attractive girl, looks over at the situation in horror. Mrs. Woods waves her hand in front of Marty's sunglasses, and gets no reaction. Susie turns her head. She can't bear to watch. Mrs. Woods gently removes Marty's glasses. His eyes are closed. Now, Marty opens his eyes. He looks up at Mrs. Woods and smiles weakly. Mrs. Woods does not smile back. She rips the headphones off, and the music abruptly stops. Mrs. Woods, Mr. McFly, detention. Cut to the interior of Strickland's office. Close on Marty's Walkman and a pair of elderly male hands being placed in a working woodworking vice mounted on the corner of a desk. Wider shot, Strickland's office. Marty fidgets uneasily in an uncomfortable wooden chair in the sparse office of Mr. Strickland. A humorous disciplinarian tightens the vice. Strickland looks 60, but he could be 160. He was born old and stayed that way and has been at this school forever. Strickland gazes at Marty, then gives the vice a hard, mean wrench. The Walkman crunches. It sounds like bones are breaking. Marty cringes. Strickland smiles sadistically and hands it back to him. Mr. Strickland, that's number three, isn't it, McFly? Marty, uh, four. Mr. Strickland You don't like school, do you, McFly? Marty rolls his eyes as if this was a real question. Marty, oh no, sir, I love school. Mr. Strickland snaps at him. You got a real attitude problem, you know that? You're a slacker, McFly. You've got an aptitude, but you don't apply yourself. You remind me of your father. He was a slacker too. Marty just sits there bored. Mr. Strickland. Now, for slacking off in class, for having a serious attitude problem, your punishment is two weeks detention with me starting this afternoon. Marty, this afternoon? I, but I can't. Me and my band have an audition at 345 for the YMCA dance. It's really important I be there. They're counting on me. I got to be there at 345. Mr. Strickland, too bad, McFly. I guess this isn't your day. Marty's sick. Cut to the interior of the detention classroom on a wall. Uh, On a wall clock, it reads 328. A regular math classroom used as detention after hours. Again, we see signs of an old school, dressed to be more modern, green chalkboards, repainted walls, new desks, and a sprinkler system. Eight or ten students are seated far apart from each other throughout the room, all supposedly studying. One of them has a skateboard along with his books. Marty is at the pencil sharpener in the back, sharpening his pencil. But the look on his face indicates he's up to something. He looks at the clock, looks up at the sprinkler's pipe, and then glances toward the front of the room. Mr. Strickland sits at the teacher's desk, grading a large stack of papers. Marty finishes at the sharpener. He sticks a piece of gum in his mouth and starts to chew it madly. Then... He steps alongside the carousel slide projector and sneaks the lens into his jacket pocket. He quickly returns to his seat. Now Strickland stands up and starts to starts towards Marty. Excuse me. Did he see Marty swipe the lens? No. He's merely patrolling the room. When Strickland isn't looking, Marty produces a matchbook and a rubber band from the pencil pouch of his loose leaf binder. He opens the matchbook cover and sticks the gum to the back side. He waits for Strickland to walk past him. Then quickly, Marty stands and, using the rubber band, fires the matchbook at the ceiling. Strickland whirls around upon hearing the snap, but Marty is seated studying. Strickland looks around suspiciously but sees nothing. He continues along. Marty glances up. The gum is holding the matchbook on the ceiling right near the sprinkler valve. He smiles. Now, Marty sets his mirrored glasses on his leg, positioning them to reflect the rays of the sun up at the matchbook. That done, he pulls the lens out of his pocket, focuses the beam onto the matchbook, and he adjusts, adjusts the lens ever so slightly. There, perfect. A white hot pinpoint of light is focused on the matchbook. Mr. Strickland returns to paper grading. He marks an entire set of answers wrong and puts an F at the top of the paper. The next paper has two right. Strickland gives an F+. Plus. Marty continues holding the lens steady as he can, waiting anxiously for the results. Above, there is a faint trace of smoke on the matchbook. The clock now reads 3.37. Strickland grades his last paper, then stands up and starts pulling down the window shades. Marty is horrified. Strickland is three shades away from Marty's window. Marty Marty looks up anxiously at the matchbook. Marty, come on, come on. Strickland pulls down the next shade. There's more smoke from the matchbook marty burn you sucker strickland pulls down another shade the next one is marty strickland steps toward it suddenly the matchbook ignites fire immediately the fire alarm sounds and the sprinklers go off marty fire strickland jumps and screams as the water sprays all over him they rush for the door marty grabs the kid with the skateboard named wheeze marty wheeze let me borrow this i'll bring it back tomorrow Marty takes the skateboard and dashes out. Strickland, stop, wait, we must file out in an orderly fashion. Another sprinkler goes off and sprays Strickland right in the face. Exterior of Hill Valley High School. It's a classic WPA style high school built in the 1930s. Marty dashes out, jumps on the skateboard, and the skateboard's down the front steps. Marty comes up around the corner, skateboards down a hill, weaving through heavy traffic, he skateboards like a champ. Exterior street, town square. This is Hill Valley, a northern California town. It's October. The town has been here quite a while, and the town and its town square business district is beginning to deteriorate. Undoubtedly, there's a mall someplace. The old courthouse is now the Department of Social Services and has a clock tower, but the clock is stopped at 10:02. A time and temperature clock. On the bank reads 343. Marty skateboards down the business street and across traffic, narrowly missing being hit by a car. Interior, YMCA, stage. Three members of the Pinheads rock band, keyboards, bass, and drums exchange nervous glances, repeatedly checking their watches. They're all set up on stage. Susie Parker is also there, but she's not a member of the band. Suddenly, Marty steps onto the stage. Susie, Marty! Marty! Marty gives her a wink, and she smiles. Marty's guitar amp and the microphone have already been set up for him. He picks up the guitar, tunes it up, then looks over at Susie. Susie smiles and holds up her crossed fingers. Marty grins back. Clearly, they're an item. Marty practices a riff, and he's great. You can't tell where the guitar ends and the man begins. He turns and addresses the dance committee, Marty. All right, we're the pinheads. And we're going to rock and roll. And that's where we'll end the opening of the next draft of Back to the Future. This is the fourth draft revised on October the 12th, 1984, with pink revisions of October the 21st, 1984. So another completely different opening than what we had in the original draft. This one... um, I'll be honest with you. I The Bobs can do no wrong in my mind, but I will say this one's a little too cutesy. Uh, I, I get that they're trying to establish that Marty was smart. They even said Strickland, you know, he has an aptitude, right? But he just doesn't have the right attitude. And then Marty is smart enough to concoct this way of setting off the fire alarm and the sprinkler system by sticking gum on the back of a matchbook, firing that matchbook with a rubber band onto the ceiling that then gets stuck next to the sprinkler, then uses his mirrored sunglasses and a lens from a projector in order to direct light onto the matchbook. I mean, I guess it's possible, right? But it just seems somewhat unlikely for Marty. Um, I like, actually, out of the two opens, I like the original one uh, from 81 better than this um cuz we we get a little bit more with Doc and Marty and their relationship and and we also, you know, kind of are left with an intrigue of mystery cuz what's behind the door? We already know Doc is working on something. So I do like that. I think that they took elements from that and they took elements from this one and uh they kind of made them both work because what we see in in the movie is it does open up in Doc's lab, same way the original one starts, right? We get a lot of exposition from the news channel, from newspaper articles on the wall, all the clocks. And um, then you get Marty to uh, go to school after that when he realizes he's late. Gets a tardy, kind of like a detention, right? Runs into Strickland, says attitude problem, you know, all that stuff. So, you know, no uh, no real differences there. And then Marty leaves the school, and and, and, uh, wants to go try out for the band, or try out for auditions for the show with the pinheads. And Huey Lewis tells him he's just too darn loud. Look, obviously either script could have been made as is, and I'm sure it would have been a serviceable film. Probably less sure of that, now that I say that, with the refrigerator being the object of it. Uh, But even in this one, you you know, the the refrigerator looked like it was going to be a big part of things, or at least the the nuclear explosion, right? And um, I just find these to be uh, fascinating article fascinating articles of history, right? Of, of of a movie that was so perfectly made, and how different it could have been. And these are from the same two minds, and I just wonder if if I talk to Bob Gale again, or if I ever talk to Robert Zemeckis, I would want to ask. Why the change from opening up in a lab in the original draft to opening up in the school? Did they want to establish that Marty was just as smart and cunning as Doc in some ways, right? I I just kind of wonder. I just kind of wonder. You get a similar vibe of Marty McFly. Uh, you do get that slacker vibe, as as, as he's called in the movie. But uh, I will say that the way that the character is painted in... in both of these drafts, the original draft and the fourth draft, he's kind of unlikable, a little bit, right? I mean, you know, he's pirating movies. He sounds a little too into himself, a li- little too arrogant. And Michael J. Fox, I don't think ever plays him as arrogant. If anything, it's it's the exact opposite. He has a false veneer of confidence about him, uh, and he steps up in big moments, so he's courageous, but I never get this cockiness from from Marty in the movies that I kind of get from these scripts. So take from take them for what you will. Uh, I'll post links to these in the show notes. If you want to read the whole script, um, both of them, I'll post links to it and maybe one day we can do a big reading if I can get a group of friends together um, or an acting class of, of some kind together and we can do a, a big group reading of this version of Back to the Future. That'd be a lot of fun. But um, who knows? Who knows? We'll try to do that sometimes. But um, really, guys, I want to thank you again for checking out this show, Back to the Future, the podcast. I really have enjoyed so far season nine. We got more episodes ahead for you. Again, I apologize if I sound nasally in any way or, um, you know, if I had trouble reading. Again, this sinus infection is nuts. I had had 102-degree fever. have pain in my eye my dental implant. My right eye is, like, partially swollen and shut. <laughs> I don't know what's going on with me. But I'm on all the antibiotics in the world, which kind of scare me as well. So we'll see what happens. I think that uh, I'll live to fight another day. Hopefully. Knock on wood. But until next time, this is Back to the Future, the podcast. The only podcast looking back in time. It's the greatest film trilogy of all time, Back to the Future. I'm your friend in time, Brad Gilmore. And I'll see you in the future.